uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Our message today uh, will come beginning in verse 21, and we will read through verse 40. The Word of God reads beginning in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord... Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what had been said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Well, this is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Now, we're one week removed from witnessing the Kansas City Chiefs win another Super Bowl. And I will confess to you that I rooted for them last Sunday because my allegiance to the Dallas Cowboys would never allow me to root for the Philadelphia Eagles. I get an amen for that. Okay. Sports is one of the many topics that, that people have strong opinions about. But we know it's not the only thing. In fact, I've come to observe that there are also strong opinions about things like Shopping at department stores. Oh, everyone thinks that the best store is whichever one has the sale that's going on right now. Well, you may not know this, but Montgomery Ward and Sears are some of the granddaddies of department stores in this country. Both got their start as catalog companies over 140 years ago in the city of Chicago. 
Now, there was once a man named Robert Wood who worked for Montgomery Ward in 1919, and Wood was paying attention to trends in this country. Wood observed that people were moving from the rural parts of the nation in droves to reside in the urban centers of the country. In fact, the census of 1920 showed that most Americans lived in the nation's cities for the first time in our history. And as people lived in cities, well, they found that habits changed. No longer were people wanting to order from catalogs. What they were discovering is that people preferred to shop in person at stores. And so Wood saw this, and he encouraged his bosses at Ward to expand the business. He was encouraging them to build brick-and-mortar storefronts. What do you think his bosses said? Well, they absolutely rejected him, said he's crazy. He was crazy because he was suggesting that the company expend funds in the midst of the Great Depression. Now, Wood, as we would come to find, as history tells us, was a man of firm conviction. Out of frustration, he resigned his position at Montgomery Ward, and he went straight across the city of Chicago, and he took a job with the competition. And it wasn't long before he found that the, Sear, that the ears at Sears uh, were, were much more sympathetic, and they received the rationale that he had once told Montgomery Ward. In fact, Sears began to build brick-and-mortar stores. And in just a decade's time, in ni- by 1929, they had built more than 300 stores across the nation, all during the Great Depression. Sears' sales, they skyrocketed. They became the forerunner of department stores in the United States. Now, Montgomery Ward, they did go about building some brick-and-mortar stores. But we also know, as history tells us, that they never recovered from its failure to be open to change. And in 2001, Montgomery Ward declared bankruptcy, closing forever. Back in 1919, the leadership at Montgomery Ward, they weren't ready to transition. They weren't ready for change. And we can look down from the ends of our noses and we can say something like, well, the folks at Montgomery Ward, they really missed it there. But honestly, if we were to reflect on our own lives, we've got to admit that a lot of the time, change ain't easy for any of us to accept. And God has wired us to look for patterns of predictability. In other words, we look for things to repeat because we can count on the familiarity of it, like the familiarity of sunrise and sunset, like the familiarity of Monday following Sunday, like the familiarity of new life that buds in the spring. And so when things aren't familiar to us anymore, when things become uncertain to us, even if we can anticipate the change, even if it's a positive change, our natural response is to become worried or afraid. This is who we are. And the leadership of Montgomery Ward were afraid to spend money during the Depression. They feared the risk of failure. They found themselves comforted and trusting what they knew. And as we consider what Luke is inviting us to this morning in this text, I wonder, what changes are you resisting? Where do those changes come from? And I wonder more deeply, why are you resisting them? 
Now to say that God had brought about a change in the life and Mary of jo- and Joseph, that is an understatement. I mean, last week we were met with the surprising details that overwhelmed our expectations for the arrival of the King of Kings against the backdrop of the birth of Jesus Christ. There was an expression of the supremes of human authority in Caesar Augustus. And where Luke intentionally invited us to contrast the likes of Augustus with all the leaders throughout human history against what God and the person of Jesus Christ is, well, we see Luke transitioning us to another contrast of sorts. Can you see what it is that Luke is contrasting against the Christ as we investigate this passage this morning? Well, let's dive deeper. See, coming on the heels of the birth of Jesus, we see that Mary and Joseph are going to fulfill their obligations as Jewish people to the law of Moses. Much like we saw them fulfilling their obligations as servants of the empire of Rome last week. It was, a custom, it was customary for a Jewish boy to be named at the time of his circumcision when he was eight days old. And circumcision was the mark of the covenant between God and Abraham. You'll find that detailed in Genesis chapter 17. Every Jewish boy who was circumcised was renewing that covenant that God had made with the people of Israel. His parents gave him the right name. Jesus. That was the name that the, that the angel Gabriel told Mary nine months earlier that, was she, that she was the name her baby boy. He would be given that name because he was to save people from their sins. The Old Testament version of this name is Joshua. It's pronounced Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. Now, in our culture, names are only identifiers. We might as well not even have names like Dan or Scott or Yvette. We might as well have names like our taxpayer IDs or our driver's license numbers. But in Bible times, names were given to develop the character of the individual. Today, names only take on value after we've lived long enough for society and culture to have judged us by the way we live lives. That's why when you open up a, a book of the most popular names of babies in 2022, you ain't going to find many babies being named Adolf or Kanye these days because those names carry all sorts of baggage. Parents, one of the best things that you can give your children is a good name. And I'm not talking about what you call them, but the character you attach to the name. It may be a good family name that you've given them. The Proverbs say in chapter 22 and verse 1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. And in addition to a good name, Mary and Joseph gave Jesus the right start. They gave him the right start by by presenting him to God. By the time we get to verse 2, Jesus is about 40 days old, and his parents took him to the temple for the first time. It's a beautiful sight to see a family attending church together. And the purpose of this visit was to present the firstborn son to the Lord. In other words, these parents were saying that God gave them this child, and they were admitting that God owned that life. This is true of the child that was born to Mary and Joseph, and it is still true today to every child that is born to you and I. So these parents joyfully took their infant son to the temple and they dedicated him to God. And good parents still do this same thing today. Whenever you're blessed with a child, you and I, we have to acknowledge that children are a heritage 
from the Lord, as the psalmist declares in Psalm 127. That means you realize God has given you this child, and so you should be so grateful that you dedicate that child to the Lord. In other words, you acknowledge that child is a gift from God, and the Lord is the creator and the owner of that life. Here at our church, that begins with the dedication, like the one that you've observed here at this service, the one we observed at the early service today. But it involves so much more than that. It involves teaching your child every day at home that God loves him or her. And it involves bringing that child to church every Lord's Day so he or she might experience the body of Christ. I want to speak to new parents for a moment. I want to speak to you because when you were single, you were only responsible for your own spiritual walk. And maybe when you got married, you you realized that you and your spouse, when you were joined together as husband and wife, you became spiritual partners. But many young married couples are too busy having fun on Sunday to make church part of their lifestyle. That's not good, but it is their choice. But when God blesses your marriage with a child, suddenly you realize you have become responsible for the spiritual development of somebody else, that little baby. And it's critically important for you to give your child a firm spiritual foundation upon which they might build their lives. And if you don't do that, do not be surprised if that child grows up and that child causes you terrible pain and embarrassment. Parents, if you want to give your children something more valuable than all the toys or gadgets or cars or all the traveling trips you can take put together, give them a good spiritual foundation. The the Bible says, again, in in Proverbs 22, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. How early do we start this? Well, Jesus' parents took him, to the, took, took him to church when he was 40 days old. Maybe that's a good time to start. Have you ever heard the statement, it's never too old to start? You're, it's never too late to start, I'm sorry. Whoever said that never tried to start providing spiritual training to teenagers. The time to start is when they're little. And if God is convicting you, here's what you need to hear. You need to be in a Bible study. You need to belong to a church. You need to take your children there so that they can have a firm spiritual foundation for the rest of their lives. That's all I'm going to say about Jesus' parents because now I want us to look at these prophets in this passage. In this passage, we're introduced to two interesting characters, Simeon and Anna. They have several similarities. First, we see that they're both elderly individuals. Anna's been a widow for a very long time, and Simeon's been coming to the temple looking for the Messiah for many years, and he's ready to die. Second, they were both looking for the same thing when they came to the temple. They were looking for the salvation of God. And even though the temple sacrifices continue day after day, according to the routine that had been unchanged for hundreds of years, these two, they were looking for something more. They knew from reading the Old Testament that God was going to be up to something new. They knew the Messiah was coming. And friends, they were on the lookout. 
And during the years before the birth of Jesus, the Holy Spirit had testified to these two. Be on the lookout for my Messiah. He's going to be born to a virgin. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He'll come of the line of David. And that Messiah is going to be holy and he will be blessed. And Simeon and Anna, they were on the lookout. That's why they recognized Jesus. And I am amazed to think that on that day, in that temple, that there were hundreds of priests, religious people, hundreds of rabbis, other Jews at the temple who were there to worship. But only two elderly saints amongst the gathering of them all recognized that God himself was present. I'm equally amazed that a few hundred people are going to show up to First Baptist Church Divine this morning and they're just going to go through the motions and the same old routine and we will have missed that God is here amongst us. Yet others will have an excited sense of expectation, an excited sense that God is on the verge of doing something fresh and new and that he's here right now with us. And these senior saints identified some important facts about the Lord Jesus. The first is that salvation is in a person, not in performance. Now just picture old Simeon taking the baby Jesus in his arms and gazing into his eyes. And he says in verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon wasn't looking at the temple when he said it. He wasn't looking at all the sacrifices that were constantly being performed by the priest. He was looking at the baby Christ. Now we're told that Simeon was righteous and devout. That means he was careful to obey the Jewish laws. But even though he was meticulous in his observance of the order of religious affairs, he realized that all of these rules and regulations, not a one of them meant salvation. He realized salvation was in his arms. He realized that all of his religious performance could not prepare him to die in peace. Only meeting Jesus Christ could do that. You see, when you, you become a born-again Christian, you don't receive a religion. You receive a relationship. You receive a person. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we cannot say this enough as a body of believers. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. It's like when you get married, you aren't receiving the institution of marriage. You're accepting and receiving a person. You're accepting or receiving a husband or a wife. And too many people today still think that, that they're going to go to heaven because of the good things that they do. The good things that they do, like they go to church or they give money to missionaries from southeastern Kentucky or they go and they feed the poor and the list might go on and on. And those are all good things in and of themselves. And we might do them because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But friend, I hope you hear me clearly on this. Should you ever stand before God and you hear the question, why should I let you into heaven? For heaven's sake, and I mean this literally, don't say because I'm a good person in answering that question. The gates won't open. Don't say all the long list of things that you think you've done in Jesus' name. That won't get you in. 
The only thing that will get you into heaven is if Jesus says, I know him or I know her on the basis of their relationship with me by grace through faith. These senior saints also saw that God's light is shining for everyone, not just the Jews. Now, because none of us are first century Jews living in Jerusalem, it's hard for us to to understand or appreciate just how radical it was for Simeon to say what he did in verse 32. What he says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Every Jew believed God's light was shining for Jesus. What about everybody, or, or, or for Jews, I'm sorry. God's light was shining for Jews, but what about everybody else? And by this time, most of the nation of Israel had forgotten that God's original covenant with Abraham was to make the nation of Israel a blessing to all the other nations of the world. They had turned in on themselves, kept it for themselves. And God's light had been darkened for the last 400 years that precede this time in our text. And during those four centuries, there hadn't been a prophet, there hadn't been an angel, there hadn't been a word from the Lord. But on this day, Simeon recognized that God had once again turned on the light of revelation and that this light was Jesus Christ. Isaiah had predicted uh, centuries earlier that people who walk in darkness would see a great light. And this was fulfilled when Jesus came. And later Jesus declares of himself, I am the light of the world. And there are probably some of you who find yourself in some kind of dark tunnel right now. And the darkness of despair or depression or desperation, I know, friend, that it is thick and that it is scary. Maybe you're so discouraged you think that you'll never, ever, ever see light again. It could be that you're addicted to drugs or to alcohol or pornography. It may be that you're lonely or that you're afraid. Or perhaps you've sunk absolutely so low that you're in the darkness of some sinful habit that's turned out the light of your spiritual life. Friend, I want you to do the exact same thing that Simeon does here in this text. I want you to to see who Jesus for who he is is the light of the world. Friend, lift up your eyes, look to Jesus, and you will find his light dispelling your darkness. Your heart may be searching in a lot of the wrong places to find hope. And Simeon had a hungering desire to see the Messiah. And when he found Jesus, he was satisfied. Friend, you're never going to be totally satisfied until you come to Jesus Christ and surrender to him. It was 1,500 years ago that St. Augustine wrote, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts hearts are restless, restless until they find their rest in you. You may wonder, okay, Pastor Dan, where can I find Jesus? Where can I find him? He's right here with you. He's right here with you as you hear the words that are spoken or as you read the the words in your Bible. Hundreds of people at the temple that day came and left and they missed the glorious fact that God was there in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is here right now. Do you recognize him? Simeon was holding Jesus and he recognized he was holding the Messiah that he was holding God's salvation 
He recognized that Jesus was the light that came into the darkness. And that's good news that causes joy and celebration. However, since he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he receives a revelation that he must speak to Mary. And I imagine that he was singing and shouting the song that we find in verses 29 through 32. But I also imagine that his voice became somber as he almost whispered the rest of the prophecy to Mary. He tells Mary four things about her son, each of which would cause her pain. And on this day, Mary learned first that Jesus would have a dividing effect upon uh, on people. He says in verse 34, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. In other words, some would be raised to a new level of life because of Jesus, and others would fall into sin, all because of him. When you understand the radical nature of the gospel, you see that Jesus actually has an opposite effect on people. And as a result, people are divided over him. When it comes to Jesus, there is no neutral ground. You either surrender to him or you rebel against him. There's no in between. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30, Whoever's not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Because we bear the nature and the character of Jesus, real Christians also have the same effect on people. A real Christian usually irritates an unbeliever. You ever wondered why that is? Well, thankfully, God's word gives us an answer for that. Paul tells us, as he's telling the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, For we, speaking of disciples of the Lord, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. I don't want to get up all in your business this morning, but i got to ask a question. How are you smelling today? See, if your nature is saturated with the nature of Jesus, meaning that you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you will have the aroma of Christ. To lost people, you will stink, though. They'll condemn you and they will persecute you. You smell like death to them. But to those who know Jesus, you're a lovely fragrance of life. And if you don't stink to unbelievers, friend, it's because you are probably trying to smell too much like them by imitating their lifestyle. And friend, if you don't stink to unbelievers, you stink to Jesus. Jesus always had and has always and still today a dividing effect to people. He loves everyone, but some choose to reject his love. That's why we're going to see when we get to chapter 12 that Jesus said sometimes he would set family members against each other. That's a reaction people have towards Jesus. Some surrender, some rebel. Simeon also told Mary that Jesus would be violently opposed. Simeon told Mary that Jesus would be a sign that is opposed. Can you imagine, as a, as a mother, if you ever heard this about your child, how Mary's heart must have been troubled to learn that this tiny little infant would be a person who would be spoken against? Even today, 2,000 years later, people are still speaking against Jesus Christ. What do you think they're doing every time they, they utter Jesus Christ in the course of some profanity that's, that's, that's spoken? 
To this day, there are many people who say Jesus was not the Son of God, that he's just a mere man. From the beginning of his ministry to today, Jesus has been a lightning rod of controversy. I mean, do you recall some of the things that they said about Jesus that we have in the Word of God? I mean, they said that he performed his miracles by the power of Beelzebul. They inferred, the Pharisees did, that he was uh, of Ill- an illegitimate child by saying, well, we know our father. They said that Jesus was a liar. And this prediction of Simeon to Mary was going to come true faster than Mary could ever imagine. In fact, Matthew gives us a different perspective, and he tells us that the governor of Galilee was a man who was named Herod, who was so threatened of a child-born king of the Jews that he would go and order the slaying of all the little boys two years and under. Jesus was opposed from the very start. Simeon also told Mary that her son would excavate the hearts of people, would dig it out. He said the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Jesus had the unique ability to peer into the heart and look at the character and the motives of others. That's not just good intuition, friend. That's an absolute miracle of God. I mean, Jesus first met Nathanael and he said, here is an Israelite in whom is no guile. How did he know? How He could see his heart. When Jesus was talking with the woman at the well, he knew without being told that she had four husbands and was living with a fifth man at the moment. And beyond that, he could tell that this woman was so unsatisfied with the life of sin that she was searching for just a cup of living water. Well, friend, do I need to go on or can I just remind you at this moment that the Lord Jesus is looking into your heart? He's looking at your thoughts and your desires and and your intents and they are all clearly revealed to him. Oh, you can fool me every day of the week that ends in why. You can fake me out, but friend, you cannot confuse or fool Jesus, so just forget about it. You might as well come clean with him. You cannot deceive him. Lastly, Simeon told Mary that her precious son would suffer terribly, and because he would suffer, she would hurt as if a sharp sword had been thrust into her stomach. He said to her, a sword will pierce your own soul Two, I'll take a moment and think. Why do you think Simeon, what, what do you think Simeon was prophesying? Now we stand here 2,000 years later after the cross and we have the advantage of knowing what happened to Jesus. And I believe the Holy Spirit was starting to prepare the heart of a loving mother for the day that she would be standing before her son as he was nailed to a cross. A short 33 years from this day in which we read, Jesus would have divided enough people, be so violently opposed, reveal so many inner thoughts of people that the religious leaders of his day decided, enough of this, let's kill him. And we're told that Mary was present in Jerusalem during the days when he was arrested and crucified. And I want you to picture the scene that morning. After a night of brutal torture and sleeplessness, Jesus was hauled before Pontius Pilate, who delivered him to the Roman soldiers to crucify him. But first, the soldiers decided, we're going to torment him just a bit. So they blindfolded him. 
And these muscular soldiers, they take a a log and they start taking turns batting our Lord across the head with a stick. (laughs) Mocking him as he's blindfolded, saying, who among us is the one who hits you? They positioned a wicked crown of thorns on his scalp and they pressed it down until there was a profusion of bleeding. They strapped his hands to an iron ring up high on a pole and they began to lash him until his skin had ruptured and was bleeding. And they did all of this while whip- and, and continued whipping him, but they stopped before he was too weak to even know that he was to be executed. And they moved him to an area outside the city wall called Golgotha because the face of the cliff looked like a skull. And they held down our Lord's arms and they drove stakes into his hands, severing a, 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 a nerve here that exists between the fingers and the wrist. And after they nailed his feet to the cross, they lifted him up. And he was suspended there between heaven and earth, left to die. And watching all of this was his mother Mary. I believe that she was in as much agony as if she had been stabbed with a long, sharp sword. I mean, every painful grimace of her son was as if someone took a sword in Mary's body and just twisted it cruelly, gouging more deeply into her wounded soul. Every parent in the room knows the unique pain that is ours when we see one of our children who's hurt. Any loving parent would gladly take the place of their suffering child. I'm sure Mary's pain was as as intense as that of Jesus, just a different kind of pain. And when her son was hanging on that cross, the first thing he says from his lips is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But the second thing he says, he says, Woman, look at your son. Behold, your son. And I believe at that moment, Mary's pain grew to unbearable proportions. I believe her mind went back to the time when she was holding her son at at 40 days of age in a temple where an old prophet said something strange as a whisper. A sword will pierce your soul. And finally at the cross... Mary understood what Simeon meant. I want you to keep this picture in your mind. I want you to keep it in your mind because we aren't truly ready to serve Jesus until we too have shared in his suffering. Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 3 and verse 10, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his suffering becoming like him in his death. You may be wondering still, why did I start with a story about Montgomery Ward like I did? And you probably, as you heard it, you may in your mind may have been wondering something like, what does he want to change now? That's a good question. But here's a better question for each of us to ask individually of ourselves. In my heart... Am I willing to change, receive change from the Lord where I might go and suffer as my Lord did? 
Am I willing to to become like him in his death? See, there's a, a transition that each of us are very likely struggling to make, and that is the tension that we feel when we try to sprinkle the salvation of Jesus Christ onto the comforts of the American dream. It's said that the Christian life should be lived in this way. We are to preach the gospel. We are to die. We're to be forgotten. I asked you to think of the changes you're resisting earlier, and I wonder how many of them are rooted in the selfish desire to cling to what you know because it's familiar and it's safe. It was the German Christian martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And friend, I don't think he was writing allegorically or metaphorically. I think he should be taken literally, just as Paul should be taken literally, as he wrote what he did to the Philippians. Just as these parents today have acknowledged that their children's life is not their own possession, The call of the disciple of Christ is to acknowledge that your life is not yours either. It's to lay yourself bare before Jesus and look upon your salvation with joy. And because Jesus is the source of that salvation, you know that you can face suffering. You know that you can face death itself with peace. And friend, you only come to that place when there's a Holy Spirit-led change where you go from resisting the idea of suffering and resisting the idea of death to welcoming, welcoming them for the sake of the gospel. Friend, what might this church be if we became one that sent missionaries not just to Kentucky, but to Afghanistan or Iraq Or Eastern Africa, where your security is not guaranteed, but you would go for the sake of the gospel. Would you have comfort and peace in knowing that you may not return? Only the Lord can provide that. And how do we know this? Well, we can look at the text. We can look at the text and and see that Simeon knew that he could depart from this world in peace. Because he had seen his Savior. 